This is a Scream Queen production. These violent delights have violent ends. Greetings, Earthlings, or should I say, hello, baby. It's, hi, it's me. I'm I'm Jen Carpenter, and this is Violent Ends. Wherever you are as you listen to today's episode, I hope that you're warm and cozy, because after a late start, winter is here, honey. And it might be March now, but Michigan is still an Arctic tundra. I say that because as I'm writing this episode out, we are digging ourselves out from another snowstorm. Between snowstorms and ice storms, my shop has been closed so much these past couple of months. But because this is Michigan, it will probably be like 60 and sunny by the time this episode airs with like another snowstorm in the forecast in a couple of days. It's chaos and it doesn't make sense, but I don't make the rules. I will say though, Michigan winters aren't typically as brutal as non-Michiganders imagine them to be. We might get like a few big snowstorms, a couple of really, really cold snaps, but for the most part, it's just gray and chilly and slushy and gross. At least downstate where I live. Up north is an entirely different ball game, and the upper peninsula That's like an entirely different world. Narnia IRL, and that, friends, is where today's story begins. In the UP, not in Narnia because that that would be weird. It's not unusual for temperatures to reach dangerously cold levels. We're talking negative 30, negative 40 degrees in the Upper Peninsula during the winter. Obscene, yes, but not unusual. In the early morning hours of February 1st, 1959, the thermostat outside Hotel St. James in the old Upper Peninsula mining town of Ironwood was sitting at a balmy negative 35 degrees when three handsome young strangers burst through the door. They were disheveled and shaken, having just endured a horrific ordeal that nearly cost them their lives. But even in their bedraggled state, it was obvious that they were different special, even, and they definitely weren't from the area. You only had to take one look at their thin jackets and shiny black dress shoes to know that. Starved, stressed, and still trying to shake off the bitter cold that almost killed them, the men checked in under the names Charles Holly, Giles Richardson, and Richard Valenzuela. But the world knew them as Buddy Holly, the Big Bopper, and Richie Valens, and what happened to them in that desolate mountain town in Michigan's Upper Peninsula, over a thousand miles from home, set off a chain of events that led to an unthinkable tragedy, not even 48 hours later. Today, we're talking about the day the music died. Before we get into it, though, I do need to thank today's sponsor. There's enough garbage in this world today, don't you think? I'd really like to contribute a little bit less of it myself, and with Lomi, now I can. Lomi allows me to turn my food scraps into dirt with the push of a button. And who doesn't love pushing buttons? Lomi is a countertop magical portal 
I mean electric composter, that turns scraps into dirt in under four hours. There's no smell when it runs, and it's super quiet. Thanks to Lomi, I'm a little bit less of a garbage person now. Everyone in my house is really getting into the rhythm of putting their food scraps into the Lomi, and I'm looking forward to the day that we can go from two outdoor trash bins to one. Since we got our Lomi, we throw out way less garbage, which means less trash in landfills producing methane. So now, instead of making meth, I'm making nutrient-rich dirt that I can feed to my plants. It feels great to know that I'm doing my part to reduce my carbon footprint, and I couldn't do it without Lomi. If you want to start making a positive environmental impact or even just make cleanup after dinner that much easier, Lomi is for you. Head to Lomi.com slash violent and use promo code violent to get $50 off your Lomi. That is $50 off when you head to lomi.com slash violent and use promo code violent at checkout. Food waste is gross. Make Lomi your homie today. All right, please keep your hands and arms inside the vehicle and buckle up, buttercups. It's time for a wild ride. There are a lot of moving parts to this one, I think this might be the longest episode. Episode. <sighs> We're off to a great start. I think this might be the longest episode that I've ever done. We'll see. We'll see when we get to the end if that's true. Point being, it was hard to decide where to start, but I guess we should start with the catalyst for this particular heartbreak city, the Winter Dance Party Tour of 1959. Organized by one of the largest booking agents in the world, at the time known as General Artists Corporation, the barnstorming tour was scheduled to hit 24 Midwest cities in 24 days. The states included in the tour were Minnesota, Wisconsin, Iowa, Illinois, Kentucky, Ohio, and Michigan. Oddly, Michigan is not on the official tour list, but I've seen the old newspaper ads and they were definitely scheduled to play at the Muskegon Armory on Valentine's Day, 1959. The winter dance party was geared toward teenagers with tickets costing between $1.25 and $2 per teen and often free admission for parental chaperones. In today's money, that would be like 12 to $18 a ticket, so that's still pretty reasonable considering the talent. Taylor Swift and Beyonce could never. The stars of the show, the bells of the ball, if you will, were Buddy Holly, the Big Bopper, Richie Valens, and Dion and the Belmonts. Um, for some shows, depending on where they were, they would bring in additional acts. Brenda Lee, Frankie Sardo, listen, listen, listen. If it sounds like I know who any of these people are, it is a charade, darling, because I I am just reading words off a screen right now. I wrote the words, but yeah, I'm just reading words off a screen. So I guess we should get this out of the way now, how today's episode came to be. Until I began the research for this one, the entirety of my knowledge about what happened came from the movie La Bamba, which was one of my absolute favorite movies growing up. So that's where my knowledge base starts with this one. 
One night, a few weeks ago, I was in an argument with my adult children about why I was not going to buy a mini recliner for my dog. Yes, you heard me right. And at one point, I looked at my youngest son and I said, you're the asshole with all the money. Why don't you buy it yourself? And he was super offended that I called him an asshole. And I was like, dude, it's a quote from La Bamba. And he said, what's La Bamba? I told him, only one of my favorite movies of all time, sir. And he said, I've literally never heard you talk about a movie called La Bamba. Like, I don't even know what words you're saying to me right now. And in that moment, I realized one of my biggest failures as a parent. So I made him sit down with me and we watched it together, which was great because I hadn't seen it in a really long time, but I still know all the words. And as we were watching it, I realized that the story that I've always treated like the gospel was probably not super accurate. Uh, that I would love to be able to cover it on the podcast. But there were no ties to Michigan, right? It's not a Michigan story. But where there's a gen, there's a way. And I found that connection, and now here we are. So I did know of Buddy Holly and the Big Bopper. My dad was a musician. My parents were super into music. We listened to a lot of records, and we listened to the radio a lot. And I also... Rags to Riches was one of my favorite, favorite shows, and they played a lot of old, like, 50s music. Um, So I was familiar with those names a little, but the rest, I have no idea who these people are. I'm I'm just telling you what the internet said. I am a Richie Valens girl. I have been most of my life. We'll be talking about him quite a bit because this is my podcast and I talk about what I want. Anyway, the tour was supposed to be a quick three-week easy cash grab and a way to drum up some new fans. Richie Valens, who was just 17, was the hot new thing, super popular, but he was just kind of getting started in the music business. His first single came out in July of 1958, and the tour started in January of 1959. So he'd only been a rock and roll star for like six months at the time. The Big Bopper, who was 28 when the tour started, was a popular radio DJ and songwriter who'd really only had one super big hit of his own, Chantilly Lace, which was released, you know, Chantilly Lace in a pretty face. I, look, if I could just play you clips of these songs without getting my ass sued, I totally would, but I can't. So we're just all going to have to deal with my singing today, and we will get through it together, okay? We'll get through it together. Anyway, Chantilly Lace was released in June of 1958, so right around the same time as Richie's first song, and just a few months before planning for the tour began. Dion and the Belmonts were a vocal trio from the Bronx, and probably the least famous—no, not probably, they were—the least famous of the acts on this tour. Um, They're not really important to this particular story. Sorry, Dion. Sorry, Belmonts. Uh, And I was really—I was very ready to sit here and tell you that I'd never heard of them, never heard their music, but their biggest hit, I Wonder Why, which I YouTubed. Uh, I do, I do remember that one, and you probably do too. It's like one of those super 50s duop songs, and it starts like dun 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 Oh my god, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I probably just lost half of you that were listening to this episode right now. I hate this for me, but I hope you're enjoying it. 
So the headliner of the tour, much to my Laban beloved surprise, was not Richie Valens. It was, of course, the late, great Buddy Holly. Buddy was only 22 when the tour started, and he was the most experienced and successful musician of the group by far. The entire tour was actually his idea. He was in this big dispute with his former manager over royalty, royalties. He was owed what would be close to a million dollars in 2023 money, so a lot of money. He had filed a lawsuit against his slimy old manager to get that money. The court process takes time. And meanwhile, Buddy was newly married, his wife was pregnant, and his last couple hits hadn't done so hot. So, Buddy had bills to pay, and despite being a famous rock star, he didn't have the money to pay them. So he decided to go on tour. Now, we know him today as just Buddy Holly, but he was actually part of a band, Buddy Holly and the Crickets. Together, they spent most of 1958 touring, including a 50-show in 25-day tour of the U.K., 50 concerts in 25 days. So when Buddy proposed another tour to begin in early 1959, his band was like, no, we're good. We're good. So Buddy found new crickets to join him on this new tour. 19-year-old Carl Bunch on drums, 27-year-old Tommy Alsup on lead guitar, and 21-year-old Waylon Jennings, that name I recognize, who was Buddy's protege on the electric bass. And then he was like, all right, so I've got my band. Let's bring that kid from Pacoima everyone's talking about. Big Bopper's got a big hit. And and let's just throw in Dion and his Belmonts for shits and giggles. So again, the plan was 24 cities in 24 days. The tour would start on January 23rd, 1959 at George Devine's Million Dollar Ballroom in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and end on February 15th at the Springfield State Armory in Illinois. Buddy would make $2,500 a week, which would be over $25,000 in today's money, so he stood to make about $75,000, a little more, maybe a little less, for the tour. I assume that the others probably made less than he did because he was the big kahuna, but I didn't find those figures anywhere. And the main thing, aside from the money, was that everybody would kind of drum up buzz for these new albums they were all working on and all of their new projects. It seemed like a good idea. But the tour from hell, as it's become known, was doomed from the start. First of all, It's never a good idea to go on a bus tour in the upper Midwest in January. And the winter of 58-59 was particularly brutal, one of the worst on record. Second, while all of the states on the tour were geographically located in the same general area, the tour route was absolutely ridiculous. Uh, One historian described it like throwing darts at a dartboard. I'll post the map on the Violent Ends Facebook page after the episode comes out, but it is, it was just insane. One would think that they'd like start north and go south or start east and go west or vice versa. Maybe they start at the top and they snake their way down or they go in one big old loop. No, this map looks like someone gave a crayon to a toddler and then they just drew a bunch of squiggly lines and that's how they decided to schedule the tour absolute nonsense. They were zigzagging back and forth past cities they'd already played in and back again. 
And then to add to the chaos, the promoters kept adding additional dates, resulting in more disjointed travel. There was at least one show scheduled for every day of the tour. Um, I'm going to give you the originally planned dates in order so you can see what I'm talking about. This tour took them from two shows in Wisconsin to a show in Minnesota, then back to Wisconsin for another show, then back to Minnesota for two more shows, then to Iowa for two shows, then back to Minnesota for another show, then back up to Wisconsin for two more shows, then back to Iowa for a show. And that was all just in the first week of the tour. So like I said, so much back and forth. And it's not like they were traveling by plane where it wouldn't matter, you know, the zigzagging and the crisscrossing and going back over their route that they just came from. No, they were traveling on old school buses that were not outfitted for comfort, luxury, or sub-zero temperatures. As such, Buddy Holly and his buddies, buddies, went through five buses in 10 days. These buses kept breaking down, or the heat wasn't working, or the bus didn't even have a heating system. I read several articles that said that the Big Bopper was so big he didn't fit in the seats. The Big Bopper was 5'10", 200 pounds, okay? He was not a huge guy. But these seats were made to fit children because they were school buses. Needless to say, nobody was having a good time. The schedule was chaos with a ton of wasted time and needless travel. The guys would often finish a show around midnight or a little bit after. They would travel all night long, sometimes hundreds of miles, arrive at their next destination without so much as time to shower and change before they had to hop on stage and do it all again. They were exhausted. Half of the bus had the flu, just miserable. They couldn't wait for the tour to be over. But no one ever imagined how it would end. Before we get into what happened, I do want to talk a bit more about the tour's three main headliners, The Big Bopper, Buddy Holly, and Richie Valens. The Big Bopper was from Texas, Port Arthur, Texas, to be exact, which is located at the southernmost point of the Texas-Louisiana state line. There's a big, long list of famous people from Port Arthur on Wikipedia, but the only name I recognized was Janis Joplin, so that's pretty cool. Giles Perry Richardson Jr., was born on October 24, 1930, the son of an oil worker and his wife. J.P., as he was known by family and friends, had two younger brothers, James, who was two years his junior, and Cecil, who was four years younger than him. When the boys were little, the family moved to Beaumont, Texas, a bigger city about 20 miles northwest of Port Arthur. Beaumont is known as the home of the world's largest working fire hydrant. So, that's a thing. A strapping young lad, JP played football in high school and beyond, but his heart belonged to music. He graduated from Beaumont High School in 1947, and he went on to study pre-law at his hometown college, Lamar University. He worked as a DJ at the radio station there and was a member of the band and the chorus. His job at the college radio station led to a job at a real radio station, which led him to quit college and pursue disc jockeying full-time. In April of 1952, when he was 21, J.P. married 15-year-old Adrienne Joy Freyu. Yes, yes, he was 21, she was 15, and that that was okay in the 50s. 
That was okay. Let's move on. The following year, in December of 1953, their first child, a daughter they named Deborah Joy, was born. In 1955, 24-year-old JP was drafted into the Army. He served his two years, then returned home, where he resumed working for local radio station KTRM. It was there that he took on the moniker The Big Bopper. He started writing songs for musicians, including the song White Lightning for fellow Beaumont native George Jones. I also recognize that name. Thank you very much. That song became George's first number one hit. JP's first big hit of his own was Chantilly Lace, which was released in June of 1958 and made it as high as number six on the pop charts. The song spent about 22 weeks in the top 40. When the Big Bopper left for the Winter Dance Party Tour in January of 1959 at the age of 28, his 22-year-old wife, Adrienne, was seven months pregnant with their second child, and their daughter, Deborah, was five. JP was building a recording studio in his home, and he was making plans to invest in his own radio station. He had a catalog of 20 newly written songs that he was looking forward to recording when he returned home from the tour. So he was only going to be gone for a few weeks, but when he returned home, he'd have a fat bank account, a new baby, and a new album to record. ooh let's talk about Buddy Holly. I'm sorry. Holly was also a Texas boy. He was born Charles Harden Holly in Lubbock, Texas on September 7th, 1936, the youngest of four children to Lawrence and Ella Holly. He had two older brothers and an older sister. He was closest in age to his sister, who was seven years his senior, so the other kids were all quite a bit older than Buddy. He was the baby, but his family didn't call him the baby. They called him Buddy. They were a musical family. Ella and all four of her children sang and played instruments. Buddy tried the violin, the piano, uh, but he didn't fall in love with music until he picked up his first guitar. His parents bought him a used guitar from a pawn shop, and his older brother Travis taught him how to play. Buddy graduated from Lubbock High School in 1955, and he didn't bother with any of that college nonsense. He was going to be a star. He got his first big break at the age of 18, when he opened for Elvis Presley, who was just a year older than him, at a series of shows in 1955. Things moved quickly from there. Inspired by the king himself, Buddy shifted his musical style from traditional Western to that newfangled rock and roll stuff. He was signed to Decca Records in January of 1956, when he was just 19. Under Decca, Buddy Holly released several singles, but none of them made a big hit, and he was dropped by the label. Buddy then went to Brunswick Records, where he recorded his first hit single, That'll Be the Day, which was released on May 27, 1957. And from there, Buddy and the Crickets were off and running. Or hop- hopping, I guess I should say, because crickets, crickets hop, right? They gained popularity here in the U.S. with hits like Peggy Sue and Oh Boy. Oh Boy is a song I only know because Richie and Bob sing it at a bar in La Bamba. But... They were even more popular in the UK. On August 15th, 1958, less than a month before his 22nd birthday, Buddy married 25-year-old Maria Elena Santiago, a receptionist at a record label Buddy and the Crickets worked with. It was love at first sight for Buddy, who asked the Puerto Rican beauty out on a date during their first meeting. Maria said yes, and on that first date, Buddy asked her to marry him. And again, she said yes. 
Less than two months later, the two were married. Together, the newlyweds settled in Maria's hometown of New York City and became inseparable. Maria toured with Buddy in his band, and she took on promotional duties amid pleas from Buddy's manager, Norman Petty, to keep their relationship a secret, as Buddy might not be so popular with his young female fans if they knew he was married. Having Maria Elena do the laundry and just kind of all the dirty work of the tour to hide her identity didn't really sit well with Buddy, and the friction between him and Norman only grew when Buddy and the band began questioning Norman's bookkeeping practices. Norman controlled all of the band's finances, and the math just wasn't mathin'. So Buddy wound up filing a lawsuit against Norman for misappropriating funds. During the lawsuit, all of the band's assets were frozen, which is what led Buddy to want to hit the tour circuit again, even though he'd only been married for a couple of months, he had been touring for the better part of a year, and his new bride had just found out she was expecting. Maria Elena didn't want Buddy to go, but the couple had big plans, and if they were ever going to make them happen, they needed big money. They wanted to open their own recording studio and publishing company, and Buddy wanted to develop new artists. He'd already taken a fellow Lubbock musician, a young Waylon Jennings, on as his protege. One thing that stood out about Buddy in a sea of nerdy-looking 1950s rock and rollers was that he refused to play by the rules. He wasn't going to fall victim to predatory managers or shady practices. He was going to put out his music, his way, no matter how long it took him or how much it cost him. For that reason, other musicians looked up to him. Big musicians, like the Beatles, like Buddy Holly was their inspiration, even the even their name, Buddy Holly and the Crickets, and they stuck with the bug theme and they went with the Beatles. Um, that's, that's not a coincidence. Even Elvis, who Buddy started his career opening for, looked up to the skinny, bespectacled, bow-tie-wearing rebel. When Buddy Holly and his reimagined Crickets, Waylon Jennings, Tommy Alsop, and Carl Bunch left for the Winter Dance Party Tour in January of 1959, 22-year-old Buddy had been married for just five months, his wife was in her first trimester of pregnancy, and he had plans to use the money from the tour to start over after a shady manager left his finances in shambles. Now, let's talk about the big dog. I realize that Richie Valens was neither the biggest celebrity on the tour nor the headliner, but he'll always be the main event to me. If you like me, have seen the movie La Bamba no less than 10,000 times, then you might think you know everything about Richie's short life. But we know now, thanks to shows like Waco and Pamela, A Love Story, just to name a couple, that our entire childhoods, as told to us by the media, were a lie. And that's no different when it comes to La Bamba and the truth about Richie Valens. I am going to give a disclaimer here, though. There is so much conflicting information about Richie's childhood and family, like dates, names, locations. I did my due diligence, and I'm providing you with the most accurate information that I was able to find. But for someone so famous, it's a little shocking how much conflicting info is out there. Richard Stephen Valenzuela was born on May 13, 1941, in the Los Angeles suburb of Pacoima. He was the first and only child of Joseph Stephen Valenzuela, who went by Steve, and Concepcion Valenzuela, who went by Connie. 
Contrary to most reports, including the information on Wikipedia, Richie's parents were not Mexican immigrants. Connie was born in Arizona in 1915. Not even her parents were Mexican immigrants. They were both also born in Arizona. And Steve was born in Los Angeles on Christmas Day, 1896. If you were paying attention to the words that just came out of my mouth, you might have noticed that there was quite an age gap between Mr. and Mrs. Valenzuela. When Richie was born, Steve was 44 and Connie was 25. The two had been married for about a year and a half. They were both laborers at a local munitions factory, and they were barely able to make ends meet. They lived in a small shack with Connie's four-year-old son from a previous relationship, Robert Morales, who went by Bob, well, Bobby when he was little, and then Bob as he got older. The Valenzuelas split in 1944 when Richie was just three years old, though they never officially divorced. Richie and Bobby were split up. Richie went with his dad. Bobby stayed with their mom, which was traumatic for both boys because they were best friends. From the age of 4 to 11, Richie was primarily raised by his father. Steve, a World War I veteran who suffered from a variety of ailments due to being poisoned by mustard gas during the war, didn't have much to give his son, but he instilled in him a love of music. He would play the guitar while little Richie tried to keep up on a ukulele. Richie learned how to play the trumpet, the harmonica, the drums, and his favorite, the guitar. It's unclear whether Steve couldn't speak Spanish or just wouldn't, but Richie grew up in a strictly English-speaking household, which is why he never learned Spanish. On January 8, 1951, when Richie was just nine years old, his dad died. His cause of death is debatable. In La Bamba, Connie said that he drank himself to death. In most of the articles and books I read, it said that he died from complications of diabetes. But Steve's family has always maintained that he died from complications from that mustard gas poisoning from the war. When Steve died, Connie moved herself and her family into the house that Steve had owned. By this time, Bob was 14, 15 and kind of coming and going. But Connie had a new partner, Ramon Ramirez, and two young daughters, Connie and Irma. I'm not sure exactly when the girls were born, but they were 35 and 36 when La Bamba came out. So that would have put their births around like 1951, 1952. So they were baby babies when Richie's dad died. Now, remember, Steve's house was small. It was small for just him and Richie. And now it was Richie, Connie, Connie's boyfriend, two babies, and sometimes Bob. Somebody had to go. And that somebody was Richie. Another departure from La Bamba in which Richie is portrayed as like this goody-goody mama's boy. He was the one child that she barely raised. And I'm not hating. I'm not hating. Times were tough. The family was super poor. But it's just facts. Richie Valens was raised by his father as a child. And then he was shuffled between aunts, uncles, and other relatives during most of his preteen and teen years. Throughout the chaos and upheaval, Richie's one constant was his love of music. He bought himself a beat-up secondhand guitar, and he refinished it in his woodworking class at Pacoima Junior High School. He focused on his music to drown out the noise of his messy home life, and in 1957, he joined the garage band The Silhouettes. While he was first supposed to play just backup guitar, he was soon the main attraction, earning himself the nickname The Little Richard of San Fernando. Also in 1957, Richie met and fell in love with classmate Donna Ludwig at one of his shows. 
Donna was 15, a blonde-haired, blue-eyed troublemaker from a well-to-do family. Donna would sneak out of her bedroom window at night to go on dates with Richie, as her father, a racist snob, was not happy with the idea of his daughter dating a poor Mexican-American kid from the wrong side of the tracks. By this time, 16-year-old Richie was living back at home with his mother and the rest of his siblings. Connie's second husband, Ramon, had left her, so it was just Richie, Connie, Connie Jr., who would have been about seven, Irma, who would have been about six, Richie's youngest sibling, uh, Mario, who was one, and then his older brother, Bob, who was 20, and Bob's wife-slash-live-in girlfriend, Rosie, lived in the basement. At some point, Bob and Rosie's eldest daughter, Brenda, joined the mix as she wasn't a whole lot younger than baby Mario, but I'm not sure exactly when Brenda was born. I'm also not sure when Bob and Rosie officially got married. They were together for a really long time first, but they did eventually get married. With their father out of the picture, their mother working two, sometimes three jobs to make ends meet, and Bob being, well, Bob. (laughs) If you've seen La Bamba, you, you know. You know Bob. Uh, 16-year-old Richie was the parental figure for his younger siblings, and they adored him, Connie Jr. especially. In the summer of 1958, when Richie was 17, Bob Keen, owner of indie label Delphi Records, attended a Silhouettes performance after receiving a tip from a friend and fan of Richie's that he should go check him out. After hearing Richie sing, he was like, you son of a bitch, I'm in. And he took Richie to the recording studio in his basement, which sounds creepy, but luckily for Richie, in this case was not, to record a demo. He also got Richie to agree to use the stage name Richie Valens because he worried that songs by Richard Valenzuela wouldn't get much airplay in 1950s America. Richie's first single, Come On, Let's Go, inspired by what Richie's mother always said to her kids when she was trying to round them up for an outing, was released in July of 1958, and it was a hit. Richie's second single, the ballad Donna, dedicated to the girl he loved but wasn't allowed to be with, was released soon after. That was an even bigger hit, as was Richie's rock and roll reimagining of the Spanish folk song La Bamba. Richie, who still didn't speak Spanish, learned the song phonetically, and just like that, it was official. 17-year-old Richie Valens, the little Richard of San Fernando, the kid from Pacoima, the California kid, was the first Latino rock star. His schedule got so hectic so quickly, he had to drop out of school. On October 6, 1958, less than three months after Richie recorded his first single, And coincidentally, on his mother's birthday, the teen heartthrob appeared on television sets across the country when he performed on American Bandstand. It was a phenomenal opportunity for the rising star, but it was one that almost didn't come to be. American Bandstand was filmed on the East Coast, and Richie lived in California. Those are on opposite ends of the country. And Richie was terrified of airplanes. For good reason. On January 31st, 1957, the year before Richie's entire life changed in a good way, it changed in a very, very bad way. Richie was 15, a student at Pacoima Junior High School. He wasn't at school that day as he was attending the funeral of his beloved grandfather, Frank Reyes, who died just three days earlier. 
Mid-morning, as 220 of Richie's classmates were headed inside after gym class, a fighter jet doing a training exercise and a brand new passenger plane headed to the Continental Airlines headquarters to be entered into service, collided mid-air over a residential neighborhood in Pacoima. As the passenger plane, a Douglas DC-7B, if that means anything to you, plummeted toward Earth, it began to rain debris down on the streets below. The pilot made one final radio transmission saying, Mid-air collision! Mid-air collision! We're going uncontrollable! Uncontrollable! Say goodbye to everybody. That is so sad. The plane itself crashed at Pacoima Congregational Church, but much of the wreckage, including the main center of the fuselage and all four engines, slammed into the playground area at Pacoima Middle School, resulting in multiple explosions and fireballs. All four crew members of the DC-7B were killed upon impact. The pilot of the fighter jet was killed when it crashed into a canyon, but his wingman was able to eject himself from the plane, and he survived with just some injuries. On the playground at Pacoima Middle School, nearly 100 students suffered injuries ranging from minor scrapes to burns and mortal wounds. Three boys died as a result of their injuries, 13-year-old Ronnie Bran, 12-year-old Bobby Zalen, and 12-year-old Evan Elsner. Dozens more were injured, and again, some of these were minor injuries, but we're talking leg amputations, head-to-toe burns, skull fractures, just a really, really gruesome and traumatic scene. Now, Richie wasn't there that day, but his family saw the smoke and commotion from miles away, and they drove toward the scene to see if they could help, unsure exactly what had happened or where until they arrived, and saw that the carnage was at Richie's school. So Richie wasn't there when it happened, but he was there. And that that type of scene would traumatize anyone. So here's the part I'm not super clear on. In La Bamba and in several articles that mention the accident, it says that Richie's best friend was one of the ones killed. But Richie was almost 16, and he was super mature for his age, taking care of his younger siblings, playing in a band, I've seen pictures of the boys that died, and not only were they a lot younger than Richie at 12 and 13 years old, but they looked a lot younger than Richie. They just looked like little boys. Stranger things have happened, I suppose, but I just don't see any of those little like little kids being almost 16-year-old Richie's best friend. Now, boys of all ages were injured, so maybe his best friend was severely injured, or maybe it was just a trauma of seeing what he saw that day. But Richie had recurring nightmares about the incident for the rest of his life. Nightmares about dying in a plane crash. He had some major PTSD and he was terrified of airplanes, understandably. Now, in the movie, they kind of make it seem like this crash happened a super long time ago. But no, there was only about a year and a half between the crash and the time that Richie had to choose between his fear of flying and his music career. And he loved music more than he hated airplanes. So, reluctantly, he flew when he had to, but when driving was an option, he chose it. And I bet when he found out that there would be no flying involved during that winter dance party tour, he was like, sign me up. As a California boy, he had no idea how brutal traveling in the Midwest during the height of winter could be. So, just to recap... May of 1958, Richie first met Bob Keane, who signed him to Delphi Records. 
July 1958, he released his first single. October 1958, he appeared on American Bandstand. And in December of 1958, this 17-year-old kid bought his mother a new house for Christmas. A new house for Christmas. He took a $1,000 advance from Bob Keene, which would be a little over $10,000 in today's money, and he used it as a down payment on a $13,500 house, which would be about $135,000 today. The house was an 1,100-square-foot pink staccato tract house in Pacoima. Richie promised his little sisters he'd put in a pool, but first, he had a tour to get to. When Richie Valens left for the Winter Dance Party Tour in January of 1959, he was 17 years old. His family was still settling into the house he'd just bought them. His little sisters were excited for their pool. His relationship with Donna had cooled due to circumstances beyond their control, but they still loved each other and kept in touch and talked about how they were going to get married someday. She was supposed to be his date to a party that he threw for friends and family at the new house just a couple days before he left for the tour, but her fucking father wouldn't let her go. She even tried to sneak out the window, but she got caught. She and Richie spent the whole night talking on the phone instead with no idea that it would be the last time they would ever speak. Richie's first album was due to be released in February, and he was already making plans to buy himself a T-Bird with the money he earned from the tour. On January 21st, 1959, Richie's aunt and uncle and his brother Bob accompanied him to the airport to send him off. Just before he got on a plane headed for Chicago, he hugged his brother and said, I want you to take care of mom. Before we go any further, I do need to thank today's other sponsor. Everybody's different, especially when it comes to health needs and goals. Care of makes it easier than ever to stick to a vitamin routine personally tailored to your everyday wellness. Care of is a subscription service that ships high-quality, personalized vitamins, supplements, and powders conveniently to your door every month. Each shipment comes with a customized pamphlet showing you exactly what's in your daily packs and why each product was recommended specifically for you and your health goals. It only takes a few minutes to take care of short, in-depth quiz about your lifestyle and health goals for a personalized, doctor-backed recommendation. I love that there's no counting or measuring or divvying up pills and powders. I'm a big fan of simplicity, and with Care Of, it's so easy to just grab your personalized packet every morning on your way out the door. For 50% off your first Care Of order, go to TakeCareOf.com and enter code VIOLENTENDS50. Again, that is TakeCareOf.com, promo code VIOLENTENDS50. And be sure to tell them I sent you. All right, so we've got Buddy Holly, a talented and revered musician, just 22 years old, newly married and expecting his first child, in desperate need of cash due to a shady business manager, making plans to record new music, open his own studio, and mentor up-and-coming artists so that they wouldn't be taken advantage of the way that he was when he started out. J.P. Richardson, a.k.a. The Big Bopper, 28, with a pregnant wife and a little girl at home. He just hoped to make it back home before his wife gave birth. He was cutting it close, and she was not happy about it. But he needed the money from the tour if he ever wanted to be more than a one-hit wonder. He wanted to start his own label, record new music, invest in a radio station. 
And Richie Valens, only 17, a rock star for less than a year, with such a bright career ahead of him, he'd finally be able to take care of his family the way that he always wanted to. The first stop on the winter dance party was at Milwaukee's Million Dollar Ballroom on January 23rd. The show was a success, great energy, sold out crowd. This was going to be a good time. But by the time the guys were packing up to leave their January 31st show at the National Guard Armory in Duluth, Minnesota, just eight days later, they were all singing a different tune. See what I did there? They were exhausted. They were frustrated. They were worn down. The definition of sick and tired. They'd already gone through five shitty buses, breaking down, heat not working, tires blowing, you name it. Every time one bus would break down, the tour promoters would arrange for another one, but the new bus was always just as bad as the last one, if not worse, and they were over it. But they still had two weeks to go. Quick side note, one person who was not over it was an enamored teen who was in the front row at the Duluth show, a budding musician himself who would later say that Buddy Holly was everything he wanted to be. 17-year-old Bob Dylan. So that Duluth show ended at about 11 p.m. on the 31st. Buddy, Richie, and JP, along with Buddy's Crickets, Waylon, Tommy, and Carl, Dion and his Belmonts, and Frankie Sardo loaded up their own gear because they didn't have a road crew, and they boarded their rickety bus for a long night of travel. Their next gig was an afternoon show the following day at the Cinderella Ballroom in Appleton, Wisconsin, some 340 miles away. Today, there's an interstate that allows for a pretty straight shot from Duluth to Appleton, but that's still like a a five-and-a-half-hour drive in ideal travel conditions. Back then, the route was much more rural. U.S. 2 would take them through forests and reservations and around Lake Superior to where Wisconsin meets Michigan's Upper Peninsula. There, it would deposit them onto Highway 51, which would then take them down to Appleton. The bus had just turned onto Highway 51, just skimmed that Michigan border, headed south to Appleton when, a hundred miles into their trip, the winter dance party came to an abrupt stop. In the middle of the night, on a desolate rural highway, in negative 35 degree weather, with waist-deep snow, no cell phones, of course, no radio for them to call for help on, no gas station to walk to, no passing vehicles to flag down, just a bus full of young men and their manager, Sam Geller, ill-prepared for sub-zero temperatures, stranded. The guys piled on all of their clothes and they wrapped themselves in blankets and guzzled whiskey and burned newspapers in the aisles to try to keep warm, sharing stories to try to keep each other awake, but they were fading and fast. As that realization set in, one of the guys said, We can't stay on this bus, man. They will read about us in the paper tomorrow. After several hours, a light at the end of the tunnel came. Literally, headlights in the distance coming toward them. A sheriff's deputy, no less. The sheriff later said that the occupants of the doomed bus were an hour, maybe two away from freezing to death when he found them. He called for backup, and several cars arrived and took the men into town, well, into two towns, technically. Hurley, Wisconsin, and Ironwood, Michigan are literally one mile apart on opposite sides of the state line. Some of the guys wound up at Hotel St. James in Ironwood, while others stayed at Club Carnival in Hurley. 
Poor Carl Bunch, though, uh, Buddy Holly's 19-year-old drummer, was bound for another destination entirely. A sheriff's deputy raced him to Grandview Hospital in Ironwood, where he was treated for severely frostbitten feet. He even wound up losing two toes. It was nearly daybreak on February 1st, 1959, by the time everyone got settled into their rooms. Richie called Bob Keene from his room, and he told him that hours after being rescued, he still couldn't feel his feet. Keene said, fuck this tour, just get on a plane and come home. But Richie decided to stick it out. The big bapper called his wife, and he told her that he couldn't get warm and he wasn't feeling well, but he was still in pretty good spirits. He always was. The Appleton show, which was supposed to start at 1.30 in the afternoon that day, had to be canceled. But rather than let the guys rest after their harrowing near-death experience, the tour promoters were like, we can't make Appleton by 1.30, but we can do Green Bay later in the evening. So a new show was scheduled for February 1st at the Riverside Ballroom in Green Bay, some 200 miles from where the guys were still recuperating in Ironwood, Michigan, in Hurley, Wisconsin. The show must go on, so the guys were loaded onto a train, and they spent the whole day traveling to Green Bay. With Carl Bunch in the hospital, Richie and Buddy took turns on the drums. The stacked lineup played their hearts out to over 2,000 screaming fans at the sold-out Riverside Ballroom on February 1st. But behind the scenes, it was clear that they'd lost a bit of their magic. Nearly freezing to death, we'll do that to ya. Unlike most nights when the guys typically like loaded their own gear onto the bus and drove through the night to their next destination, everyone stayed at a hotel in Green Bay that night. Uh, I mean, they definitely earned it. It hadn't even been 24 hours since their near-death experience. So yeah, they, they needed warm beds to sleep in that night. There is no rest for the wicked, however, and the guys had an early morning wake-up call on February 2nd. They boarded, by some accounts, the same bus that nearly killed them, now repaired, and by other accounts, it was a new bus that had been brought in from Chicago. Either way, they were back on a rickety bus in negative 25-degree temperatures, this time bound for Clear Lake, Iowa, over 350 miles away. Now, just to reiterate how stupid this tour schedule was, look up Duluth, Green Bay, and Clear Lake on a map. To go from... Duluth down to Green Bay, then back over to Clear Lake was so fucking stupid. So many unnecessary miles and wasted time. Duluth to Clear Lake to Green Bay would have made sense. And if that's the route they would have taken, we probably wouldn't be having this conversation right now. By this point, the guys weren't just run down. They were full on sick. The Big Bapper had a fever, and he was experiencing flu-like symptoms, as were several members of the crew. Richie felt like he was coming down with something. It was still freezing out. There was still snow as far as the eye could see, and the guys were still on a rickety-ass, uncomfortable bus. It was Groundhog Day, literally and figuratively. It was February 2nd. It was Groundhog Day. And Wisconsin wasn't done with the winter dance party yet. A good 240 miles into their trip, just as they were about to cross the Mississippi River into Iowa, the heaters on the bus went out again. They stopped at a service station, and while the heaters were being repaired, the guys stocked up on whiskey and sleeping bags to keep warm. They pulled into Clear Lake, Iowa about 6 p.m. Their show at the Surf Ballroom was scheduled to begin at 7.30. 
There was no time to rest, no time for a hot meal, and no time to have their laundry done so that they could wear clean clothes to the show. They had all absolutely had it, Buddy especially. And what's worse, as soon as their show at the surf ballroom was over, they were supposed to get back on that same stupid bus and travel nearly 400 miles north to Moorhead, Minnesota for their show the next night, February 3rd. Buddy asked the manager of the surf ballroom, Carol Anderson, to charter a plane to take him and his bandmates, Waylon Jennings and Tommy Alsup, to their next destination. He needed time to rest, a bed to sleep in, a laundromat to do his laundry and have some clean clothes. He needed off that fucking bus. So during the show, Anderson contacted Dwyer Flight Service out of nearby Mason City, Uh, and asked him to fly a small plane from Mason City to Fargo, North Dakota's Hector Airport, which was the nearest airport to Moorhead, Minnesota. Arrangements were made for 21-year-old Roger Peterson to fly Buddy Holly and the Crickets the 366 miles from Mason City, Iowa, to Fargo, North Dakota, in a 1947 Beechcraft Bonanza four-seater. Roger Peterson loved to fly. He got his private pilot license just four months after he graduated high school in October of 1955. He began working for Dwyer Flight Service soon after, and in January of 1959, just days before the ill-fated flight that would forever link him to some of music's biggest stars, he got his certification as a limited flight instructor. I have, I have no idea what that means, but the article I read did specify that Peterson was only licensed to fly under visual flight rules, which means he could only fly during daylight hours and in good weather, and his final flight had neither of those things. Peterson was newly married. He'd married his high school sweetheart, Deanne, just four months earlier, and the two were making a home for themselves in Clear Lake, where the winter dance party partied on February 2nd, 1959. Roger was excited about an application he'd just put in with Northwest Airlines, and he was waiting on that call. Even though everyone was sick and tired and fed up, Buddy Holly and his pals put on a hell of a show to a sold-out crowd at the surf ballroom that night, even though half of the guys, including the Big Bopper and Richie Valens, were sick as a result of their near-death experience in the Midwest wilderness. During the evening, Richie called home and talked to his brother Bob. He told him he was exhausted, under the weather, and homesick. Immediately following the conclusion of the winter dance party on February 15th, Richie was scheduled to fly to New York to accept a gold record for his song Donna. He asked Bob to meet him there, and Bob said he'd make it happen. So that scene in La Bamba where Richie's sick and talking to Bob on the phone right before he gets on that stupid fucking plane, that really happened. And he was sick because of what happened to him in the Arctic tundra that is Michigan's Upper Peninsula during the winter months. Who knew? Buddy Holly also called home that night. He told his wife, Maria Elena, that the, the whole thing was a shit show, morale was low, and he just really wanted to get this tour over with as quickly as possible. He did not tell her, however, that he'd chartered a plane to fly to his next destination. But word spread among the Winter Dance Party crew about Buddy's flight plan, and those other two seats on the plane quickly became a hot commodity. Which, hot take here, but that was kind of a dick move on Buddy's part, I feel like. The entire tour from hell was his idea, his little brainchild. 
everyone else was just as miserable as he was. Half the guys were sick on top of it. Why would he only charter a plane for himself and his band instead of asking who else might want to fly and then getting a big enough plane for everyone? Because you know what? If they would have chartered a bigger plane, we might not be having this conversation right now. When the Big Bopper found out about the plane, he asked Waylon Jennings if he would be willing to give up his seat. Jennings felt bad for JP, who'd had to do a wardrobe change in the middle of his set because he was sweating so bad and he was still running a fever. So he gave up his seat. When Richie found out about the plane and that JP had successfully convinced Waylon Jennings to give him his seat, Richie approached Tommy Elsup with the same proposition. He was also sick, after all, not as sick as his cohort, but still in pretty rough shape. Tommy didn't have the same giving heart that Waylon did, and he refused to give up his seat and get back on that bus from hell. After the show, Buddy was informed about the change in plans that the Big Bopper would be flying with him instead of Waylon Jennings, and Buddy, just just joking, just teasing, told Waylon, Well, I hope your old bus freezes up again. And Waylon shot back, Well, hell, I hope your old plane crashes. Those were the last words Waylon Jennings ever spoke to his friend Buddy Holly, so he had to live with that for the rest of his life. As Buddy, JP, and guitarist Tommy Alsup were loading their bags into the station wagon that would take them to the airport, Buddy asked Tommy to go back inside and make sure they hadn't forgotten anything. There, he ran into Richie, who was signing a few last-minute autographs. Richie again pressured Tommy for his seat— Quite a turnabout for someone who, just months earlier, had sworn up and down that he would never get on an airplane. Tommy again declined, so Richie suggested a toyn cost. Tommy reluctantly grabbed a half dollar from his pocket. Do you remember 50-cent pieces? Those things were so fucking big. I mean, I'm sure they still exist, but I haven't seen one in a long time. They're huge. Um, So he grabs his 50-cent piece from his pocket, and he tossed it in the air as Richie said, Heads I go. Tails, you go. It came up heads. Tommy accompanied Richie back out to the station wagon to explain the change of plans to Buddy. Buddy just shrugged it off. As long as he had a seat on the plane, that was all that mattered. Surf ballroom manager Carol Anderson, accompanied by his wife and son, delivered Buddy Holly, J.P. the Big Bopper Richardson, and Richie Valens to the Mason City, Iowa Municipal Airport at about 12.40 a.m. on February 3rd, 1959. The Rockers paid $36 each for their seats, which in today's money would be roughly $370. So that that tracks. That's about the price of a, a reasonable plane ticket, right? They chatted with their pilot, Roger Peterson, and his boss, Jerry Dwyer, for a few minutes. And then just before 1 a.m., the three rock stars and their young pilot walked out to the plane together. Richie and the Big Bopper got in the back while Buddy sat up front with the pilot. Dwyer and the Andersons watched that small plane take off and disappear into the snowy, windy night. As several Mason City residents were awakened by the sound of a plane flying low, too low, blowing snow on their houses and rattling their windows, Jerry Dwyer was attempting to make radio contact with his pilot but was unsuccessful. He contacted airports along the route Roger Peterson was supposed to be flying, but none of them had made contact either. Anxious to find his pilot, Jerry Dwyer returned to his Clear Lake home, and then he just waited for the flight's estimated arrival time in Fargo to come. 
At 3.30 a.m., he contacted the airport in Fargo, and he was told there had been no sign of the plane. Authorities in Minneapolis put out an alert about the missing plane at 5.16 a.m., and the Air Force Search and Rescue Coordination Center was notified about an hour and a half later. All the while, Waylon Jennings, Tommy Alsup, and the rest of the Winter Dance Party was traveling that same route by bus, completely unaware that their friends were missing. Also unaware, Buddy's pregnant wife in New York City and his family in Lubbock, J.P. Richardson's pregnant wife and little girl in Beaumont, Texas, and the Valenzuela family in Pacoima. Only Deanne Peterson, the wife of the pilot, knew something was wrong. She'd expected her husband home by about 6.30 in the morning, and when she woke up and he wasn't there, she said that she just had this overwhelming feeling that he would not be coming home. At 9.15 a.m., unable to just sit around and wait for the news that he knew was coming, Jerry Dwyer took a small plane up to retrace Roger Peterson's route. 20 minutes later, just about eight miles from the airfield, he spotted the wreckage. When neighbors heard emergency vehicles speeding past their normally quiet neighborhood, they thought about that plane from the night before, and they knew something bad had happened. The airplane was unrecognizable mangled and twisted into a ball of steel resting up against a fence post. Inside what was left of the plane, the body of 21-year-old pilot Roger Peterson was wrapped around the control panel. It would take metal cutting tools and several hours to pry his body from the wreckage. The bodies of 22-year-old Buddy Holly and 17-year-old Richie Valens were lying on the ground just south of the plane. The body of the Big Bopper was a bit further away, on the other side of the fence, lying in a cornfield. There are actually pictures of this scene online, because of course there are. Everything's on the internet, right? And it is just so, so strange looking, the whole scene. Um, Most of the pictures are in black and white, and they're all from a good distance away, so it's it's not gory or anything. It's just really sad. Once authorities were on scene... Jerry Dwyer, who had been, like, circling overhead to let them know where to go, he flew the plane back to his airfield so that he could drive out to the scene. His colleague, Bob Boo, which is an appropriate name because we're all going to be booing Bob in a minute here, was at the airport holding down the fort, handling Jerry's job duties while Jerry was out looking for the missing plane. Jerry told Bob, I found the plane. I'm pretty sure they're all dead. Um, Now, Babu was a good friend of Roger Peterson's, but his claim that he was just devastated by this news is put into question by what he did next. He later recalled, I'm sitting there all this time like a lump on a log, and I realize, holy cripes, I'm in the midst of a story. So Bob wasted no time. He called local radio station KCRG in Cedar Rapids and informed them that some prominent people, had just been killed in a plane crash near Clear Lake. But it gets worse. Bob then drove out to the crash scene himself, confirmed that the plane had in fact crashed and that everyone was indeed dead. They were just all laying all over in the field. And then he raced back to the airport so that he could be the first one to tell the world what happened. He said, he actually said, out loud, I started feeding phone reports out of there. These are prominent guys. You don't sit on their names while they notify next of kin, because this was a very significant story. What? You 
absolutely sit on their names while authorities notify the families. You piece of shit. In Beaumont, Texas, where the Big Bopper had worked at radio station KTRM for years, it was a competing station that broke the news first. When the DJ at KTRM was told, JP is dead, he refused to announce it on air. He was so traumatized another employee had to take the mic and make the announcement. One person who heard that announcement was JP's brother-in-law, Adrian Richardson's brother. He had the unenviable task of telling his pregnant sister that he'd heard on the radio that her husband was dead. Just down the road in Lubbock, Texas, there was more confusion than anything else. Stations were reporting that Buddy Holly and his band had been killed in the crash. So the families of Waylon Jennings and Buddy Holly mourned together, only for Waylon's family to be very surprised when they got a phone call from him later that day. Buddy's older brother Larry stopped into Pansy's Cafe in Lubbock for lunch just for his waitress to tell him, his waitress at a cafe to tell him that his little brother had died in a plane crash. Mary Elena Holly was at her and Buddy's home in New York when a news report flashed across the TV informing her of her husband's death. The shock and trauma from finding out the way she did caused Maria Elena to miscarry her baby the following day. In Pacoima, California, the Valenzuela family found out exactly the way it's depicted in the movie. Richie's mother was in the backyard hanging laundry on the line when a radio bulletin announced that her son was dead. Donna Ludwig, Richie's muse and love, was summoned to the principal's office where the press was waiting anxiously to take photos as school officials broke the news to her. Bob Keene, Richie's manager, was driving down Sunset Boulevard listening to the radio when he heard about the crash. The DJ wasted no time announcing that he was playing a tune by the late, great Richie Valens. The last to find out about the crash were the surviving members of the Winter Dance Party. Because remember, they were all on that bus traveling from Clear Lake, Iowa to Moorhead, Minnesota. They arrived at their hotel in Moorhead a little after noon, Ironically, this was the smoothest trip they'd had the entire tour, even though it was one of the longest. No breakdowns. Tommy Alsop later said he wrapped himself in the Big Bopper's sleeping bag, stretched out across one of the back seats, and slept like a baby the entire ride. Most of the guys were still sleeping when the bus rolled into the hotel parking lot, so it was just tour manager Sam Geller and coin toss loser Tommy Alsop that entered the hotel lobby together. Geller approached the front desk and asked the clerk what rooms Buddy, Richie, and JP were in. The clerk looked like she'd seen a ghost as she pointed to a TV. On the screen was a photo of the Big Bopper, and at first, Sam and Tommy just assumed that it was a promo for the night's show. But as footage of the plane crash started to play, they realized what had happened, and they were devastated. They then had to return to the bus, wake everyone up, and tell them the news. Back in Ironwood, Michigan, 19-year-old Carl Bunch was still in the hospital, adjusting to life with eight toes. He noticed the staff acting differently toward him all of a sudden, quiet, somber, just like a lot of staring, but nobody said anything. A little while later, he called his mother to update her on his progress. You know, he was healing well, and he was going to be discharged in the next day or so. And his mom asked him, what are you going to do now? He told her, I'm going back on the road. What do you mean, what am I doing? I'm putting my boots on and I'm going back on tour. 
And she said, Oh, Lord, you don't know they're dead yet, do you? And that's how he found out. Not a single family member of any of those killed found out about the crash from any sort of authority figure. They were all ambushed by news reports, put out hastily by stations, anxious to break the story first. And in many cases, the details provided were sensationalized and inaccurate. Didn't we just talk about this in the last episode? Do better. It's because of how the news broke on the day the music died that official protocols were implemented to ensure that the names of victims are not released by authorities until after their families have been notified. I don't know if that would have fixed this because was Bob Boo considered an authority? Maybe because he worked for the airport. I don't know. I don't know if that would have changed this situation, but it, I mean... As their families were finding out about the crash from TV and radio stations... The bodies of Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and the Big Bopper were transported to local funeral homes. Their remains were so frozen that they had to be thawed before they could be fingerprinted. Acting coroner Ralph Smiley examined the bodies, sorted through personal belongings, and filled out death certificates. He also collected $11.65 cash from each of the victims' wallets, about $120 in today's money, for his fees. The fucking audacity. I, I can Why? Why are men? When the man who'd sponsored the concert at the Moorhead Armory found out about the crash, he immediately began contacting the TV and radio stations, asking them to put out announcements that the concert was canceled. I mean, obviously, right? Oh, no. No. No, no. He was contacted by a representative from GAC, the tour promoter, telling him to move forward with the concert and that they would find acts to replace Buddy, Richie, and JP, who had been dead for less than 24 hours. Back at the hotel in Moorhead, tour manager Geller had checked his heartbroken talent into their rooms, told them all, you know, get a good night's sleep, we'll pack it up in the morning, and we'll head back toward home. He was horrified when he got the call from GAC telling him to find some local talent to fill the openings left by three dead rock stars because the concert that night was still happening. Waylon Jennings and Tommy Alsup were devastated by not only the deaths of their friends, but the realization that those were their seats on that plane. It was only by a twist of fate that they were still alive. And then they also had some pretty emotional conversations with their families, who spent half the day thinking they were dead. And then they got the call from GAC. Alsup recalled being told, Well, you know you gotta go ahead and do that show tonight. If you and Waylon leave, the show's gonna break up. Remember that old adage, the show must go on. You're all professionals. We'll take care of you when you get back. We'll give you the balance of what we were paying, buddy. What is wrong with people? What is wrong with people? It would have been one thing if the guys wanted to perform. You know, we're here, the concert's tonight. What better way to honor our friends than to play some music? It'll be cathartic. But no, they were essentially forced into performing. The winter dance party didn't stop even when its three headliners died in the middle of the tour. Not a single show was canceled. On February 5th, eight-toed Carl Bunch even rejoined the guys in Des Moines, and he finished out the rest of the tour, which ended on February 15th, 1959, in Springfield, Illinois. 
As the winter dance party limped along, bereaved families arrived in Iowa to collect their dead. Buddy and JP's bodies were flown on separate private planes back to Texas at the expense of their respective estates, while Bob Keene paid $7,000 out of pocket to have a train transport Richie's body back to Pacoima. The promoters of the tour that killed them not only wouldn't stop or even pause the tour, but they wouldn't even pay to have the bodies sent back to the boys' hometowns for proper burial. When Bob Keene arrived at Richie's funeral, he had copies of Richie's still unreleased album with him. Richie's rise to stardom was so fast and so brief, he hadn't even had time to put out an album yet, just a few singles. February 3rd, 1959 has been dubbed The Day the Music Died, but for those who knew and loved Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and J.P. Richardson, the nightmare continued long after the headlines ended and the crowds dispersed. Immediately following the crash, songs by all three skyrocketed to the top of the charts, but they quickly fell back to earth, and albums released in the months and years following their deaths failed to gain a lot of real traction. Back then, people listened to what was on the radio, and if they liked a song, they bought the album. But radio stations liked their artists to be alive so that they could come in for interviews and do promotional contests and do concerts. So albums released posthumously didn't tend to do very well. The official cause of the accident, as determined by the Civil Aeronautics Board, was determined to be the pilot's unwise decision to attempt a flight that required skills he did not have. Basically, Roger Peterson wasn't licensed to fly at night or in bad weather, and it was 1 a.m. and snowing when the plane took off. Also, Peterson's experience was in flying a type of plane that had controls that were the exact opposite of the controls in the Beechcraft Bonanza, which that should not be allowed. That is like a car manufacturer being able to choose whether they want the brake and gas pedals on the right or left and all cars being different. Like, that's not, no. So, essentially, Roger couldn't see. His controls were backwards. He got confused. He thought up was down and down was up. And he quite literally just ran the plane straight into the ground at 170 miles per hour just a few minutes after takeoff. He and all of his passengers were killed instantly. The cause of death for each was listed as severe head trauma. Insurance settlements of $25,000 to $50,000 were issued to each family, which would be the equivalent of like $230,000, $500,000 today. And Richie's family sued Dwyer Flight Services for $1.5 million, which would be over $15 million today. So Richie was still a kid. He was a minor. So they had, you know, added responsibility to take care of him and they didn't. They settled the lawsuit out of court for $75,000, which would be over three quarters of a million dollars today. Maria Elena Holly was so distraught after losing her husband one day and her baby the next that she couldn't even attend Buddy's funeral. She eventually did go on to remarry and have a family. She married a government official from her home country of Puerto Rico and together they had three children. She is now divorced and living in Dallas, where she enjoys her life as a grandmother. In 1978, a biopic was made about her late husband called The Buddy Holly Story, starring Gary Busey. (laughs) 
I hadn't seen it, and I couldn't bring myself to watch it in preparation for this episode because Gary Busey makes me very uncomfortable. (laughs) I'm sure when it was released, it was fine. We didn't know what a fucking weirdo he was yet, but I can't. No, I can't do it. I can't do it. In 1989, Buddy, the Buddy Holly story, which sounds a little redundant to me, um, a musical debuted on Broadway, and according to Wikipedia, it last toured in 2016. In 2010, Buddy's widow founded the Buddy Holly Educational Foundation, a charitable corporation whose mission is to keep Buddy's legacy alive by providing musical education to new generations, regardless of income, ethnicity, or educational limitations. Buddy, who was inducted into the first class of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1986, is credited with changing the face of rock and roll and inspiring and influencing the careers of the Beatles more than anybody else. Paul McCartney even owns Buddy's catalog of music now, but also the Rolling Stones, Bob Dylan, uh, Waylon Jennings, obviously, of course. Obviously, of course, like I'm some music connoisseur over here. Two months after the Big Bopper's death, his wife gave birth to their second child, a boy she named J.P. Richardson Jr. Though J.P. Jr. would never meet his father, he followed on the same path, embarking on a musical career and touring the world as the Big Bopper Jr., performing on some of the same stages and even going on tour with a Buddy Holly impersonator. Although the Big Bopper Jr. and Sr. never met, they did come face to face. On March 7, 2006, the Big Bopper was exhumed so that he could be moved to uh, a different grave site. So his his grave had been granted like um, designation as a historical site, and they wanted to put up this big statue. But where he was located, you couldn't have standing monuments, so they had to move him to be able to put up the statue. And his son used this opportunity to have a forensic anthropologist conduct an autopsy on his father, which one was not done when he died. The reason for this was there had been a couple of long-standing conspiracy theories about the crash, and Bopper Jr. wanted to see if they had any merit. The first rumor was that a gun had been fired on the plane, and that was the reason for the crash. Buddy Holly did carry a gun for protection, and he did have it on the plane with him that night. The gun was found near the crash site a couple months after the wreck with one bullet missing. That started these rumors that there had been either an accidental discharge or some sort of altercation on the plane that led to the gun being discharged. So Bopper Jr. wanted his dad checked for bullet wounds. The other rumor was that JP had survived the initial crash and he tried to go for help before succumbing to his wounds, which was why he was so much further away from the plane than everyone else. And I've seen the pictures. He wasn't that far away. He was a little bit further away, but not that much further away. Everyone in the room that day was shocked by how intact the Big Bopper's corpse was when they removed the lid from his casket nearly 50 years after his death. His skin was blue. The same color J.P. Jr. said it always was in his dreams about his dad. His hair was still perfectly coiffed, and his clothing was remarkably preserved. While it wasn't a father-son reunion anyone would wish for, J.P. Jr. did at least get to lay eyes on his father in the flesh just for a moment. 
The autopsy determined that there was no bullet wound anywhere on JP's body and that he died upon impact. Every bone in his body was broken and his skull was crushed. There was no chance he'd survived, even for a second. Back to that Buddy Holly gun thing, though. The reason there was a bullet missing was that when the farmer who owned the land found the gun, he picked it up and fired it to see if it worked. This next part's a little sus, though. So, Buddy's brother and brother-in-law traveled to Iowa the day after the crash to identify Buddy's body and escort it back to Texas. While they were there, they visited the crash scene. Aside from the bodies, nothing had really been removed yet. There was clothing and personal effects that a volunteer had kind of like sorted and piled up neatly. Out of all Buddy's things, the fancy jacket, the stage costumes, his glasses, his brother only took his shaving kit. His shaving kit, which was where Buddy usually kept his gun. So I'm not buying into any of this conspiracy theory stuff. I don't think that Buddy shot someone on the plane and that's why it crashed. I'm just saying it's a bit suspicious that the day after his death on the crime scene, his brother was only interested in getting his gun away from the scene. It's hard to put into words how important Richie Valenzuela was to his community. He came from a poor neighborhood where a lot of immigrants lived and struggled in the super racist 1950s America. Not to mention, the entire community had already been traumatized by one plane crash just a year and a half earlier when it fell from the sky and landed on top of their children, one of whom would have been Richie had he not been at his grandfather's funeral that day. Richie was their star, their hero, their bright light after some really, really dark days, and now he was gone. And that's just what he meant to his local community. Globally, he was the first Mexican-American rock star, the first Chicano rocker to go global. La Bamba was the first Spanish song to cross over to pop and rock audiences and hit the top of the charts. At 17, he was an absolute trailblazer, an icon. His star rose so fast, and it fell so hard. Just eight months passed between his first meeting with Bob Keane and his tragic death. Speaking of Bob Keene, who has betrayed me. In La Bamba, he was a super nice guy that wanted to help Richie and help his family. In reality, following Richie's death, he took back the car that he'd given Richie as a gift, and he presented Richie's mom with a $4,000 bill for funeral expenses. According to the family, he was basically like, look, I put all this money into Richie's career, and now I'm not going to get a return on my investment. Per the totally illegal contract that he signed with a 17-year-old boy, Bob owned all of Richie's recordings, released and unreleased, in perpetuity, which means forever. The family did get to keep the house that Richie bought for them, though, and even eventually got that pool. Speaking of people who took advantage of Richie's death, remember how Donna's dad was super racist and wouldn't let her date Richie? Well... After Richie died, he forced her to record two songs, Lost Without You and Now That You're Gone, in an attempt to capitalize on Donna's relationship that he wouldn't even allow her to have. Donna hated her father for that, and their relationship never recovered. Donna did, however, remain close to Richie's family. Now, some articles I read said she never even met them before his funeral, but after he died, she kind of stepped in 
kept in touch, helped take care of the kids. I mean, she didn't, you know, like move in with them or anything, but she like helped watch and take care of the kids because she knew how much they meant to Richie. Bob, good old Bob, Bob and Rosie were together for over 20 years. They eventually got married. They had a total of seven kids together, and then they got divorced in the 1970s. Bob went to rehab, got clean, and became an addiction counselor. That was where he met his second wife, Joni, who he married in 1979 and stayed married to until his death. Together, they had one more child. Bob was wild before Richie died. If you've seen La Bamba, you know that. That part is very true. And he got wilder after Richie died. Makes sense. But as he got older, he settled down and he focused on being a good dad to his eight children and a good grandfather to his 30 grandchildren, 30 grandkids, some of whom he helped raise. La Bamba Bob, as he'd become known, died in 2018 at the age of 81 following a battle with prostate cancer. Despite his brief time on the music scene, Richie Valenzuela changed the game. So in 2001, he was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame by none other than my boyfriend since his menudo days, Ricky Martin. The Day the Music Died was a hugely important historical event that shocked the world and changed the face of rock and roll forever. But humans are fickle beings with short-term memories and even shorter attention spans, so Once the story had been covered ad nauseum and the funerals were over and the songs fell from the charts and there was nothing new to talk about, the world just kind of moved on. And then La Bamba happened. After a failed screenplay attempt by one production company in the 1970s and stalled talks of a musical, the Valenzuela family reluctantly agreed to give brothers Luis and Danny Valdez five years to put together a project that would bring Richie to life on the big screen. They did it in three. With the family's blessing, they started filming La Bamba in 1986. Lou Diamond Phillips, an up-and-coming actor, starred as Richie, even though he originally auditioned for the role of Bob. Isai Morales played Bob, even though he originally auditioned for the role of Richie. The first version of the script actually had Bob as the main character, with Richie as kind of this like unlikable, snobby little punk always getting into trouble, which was not who Richie was at all. At the family's request, the production company brought in the band Los Lobos to record Richie's songs. So in the movie, we are neither listening to Richie Valens nor Lou Diamond Phillips singing. Los Lobos even appears in the film. They're the band that's playing, um, they're like performing a traditional rendition of La Bamba in that Tijuana scene. Also in the movie, Richie's whole family. His sisters, Connie and Irma, appear in the opening scene as farm workers. Connie and Irma's daughters, Richie's nieces that he never got to meet, play their own mothers as children in the film. So they, Richie's nieces play Richie's little sisters in the movie. Richie's mother appears as a guest at a party that they have kind of like halfway through the movie. There's a party at the house. Rosie's just had the baby. Um, Richie and Bob are sitting on the, not not Bob's brother, Richie and Bob, the manager, are sitting on the couch playing the guitar, and there's a woman sitting next to him, and that is Richie's real mom. Now, a couple articles said that Bob is in the movie somewhere. I watched it again last night before I recorded this morning, and I didn't see him anywhere. I I would think it would make sense for him to have been like one of the motorcycle gang because he really did ride a motorcycle, but I, I didn't see him. If he was there, 
didn't see him. I will say, though, I've seen the movie like a majillion times, but watching it last night after doing all this research and writing out the episode was super, super duper emotional. Uh, And I wasn't really expecting that, but it was really hard to get through. And I probably cried harder last night than I have any of the other millions of times that I've seen the movie. La Bamba premiered in the U.S. on July 24th, 1987. Richie's sister Connie told a reporter that they were happy with the movie, that it brought them closure, and that they were finally able to make peace with Richie's untimely death. This must have been true because Richie's mom passed away just three months after the movie was released. She was buried beside her son. In its first 12 weeks at the box office, La Bamba grossed over $52 million, proving that movies about Latinos made by Latinos could do well in Hollywood. What Richie Valens did for Latino rockers, La Bamba did for Latino movies. And the soundtrack? Forget about it. Both the album and the single La Bamba by Los Lobos shot to number one on Billboard's Hot 100 chart, which the original version by Richie never even did. The movie was nominated for a Golden Globe for Best Motion Picture Drama in 1988, but lost out to The Last Emperor, which is super lame. Who goes and grabs the last, last, lost emperor? See, I don't even know the name. That's how lame it is. Who goes and grabs that to put on as their comfort movie when they're having a bad day? Nobody. Also nominated for Best Picture that year under Best Comedy or Musical was my other favorite movie from childhood, which also lost, Dirty Dancing. I had no business watching that one at eight years old, uh, but did any of us? I I don't know. I just remember that I very often would watch the two together back to back. I think they might have even been on the same VHS. I still watch Dirty Dancing from start to finish whenever it's on TV. La Bamba's a bit harder to come by. I don't think I've ever just been flipping through the channels and seen La Bamba on TV, but it's available on streaming services. I need to get it on like DVD or VHS. I'll do that. I'll do that one of these days. I do always look for it. So um, I buy VHS to sell at the store, and every time I'm shopping at like a thrift store looking for VHS, I look for La Bamba and haven't found it yet. I watched La Bamba so many times as a kid. I still have most of the movie memorized, even though it had been several years since I'd seen it before I watched it with my son um, recently, which started this whole episode, which we've already discussed. Uh, My best friend Trini and I probably watched it a couple times a week, at least when we were kids, and I had this uncanny knack. Okay, her parents are awesome. They're also pretty proper, and I always felt like this feral little creature when I was around them as a kid. They both speak Spanish, so we'd be watching La Bamba. The characters would start speaking in Spanish, except for Richie, because like me, he didn't know the language. And I had this incredible ability to only repeat a word and ask what it meant if it was a curse word. (laughs) And they would laugh at me, and they would like give me a PG definition, but... I swear, I swear, you just, you can't take me anywhere. Never could, never can. Just, that's, that's me. With the success of La Bamba came a new wave of interest in Richie's story and his music, which then brought out the vultures again, trying to capitalize on his death the same way they capitalized on his life. One of those vultures was a bit of a surprise. Tommy Alsup, the guitarist who lost that infamous coin toss to Richie. 
backed by wealthy investors, also opened up a country western club in Dallas in 1987, the same year La Bamba came out. And guess what he named it? Tommy's Heads Up Saloon. Heads up. Because if that fucking coin had landed on tails, he'd be the one six feet under instead of Richie Valens. And you know what? Nobody would have made a smash movie about him. Know how I know? Because he's dead now, and nobody did make a movie about him. I said it before, I'll say it again, the absolute audacity of these crusty old white men profiting off the death of a young kid who did more in eight months than they did in their entire lives. Anywho, every year, on the anniversary of the day the music died, a memorial concert is held at the Surf Ballroom, where 22-year-old Buddy Holly... 17-year-old Richie Valens, and 28-year-old Big Bopper played their last show. And guess what it's called? The Winter Dance Party, of course. Previous guests have included the families of the victims, the stars of La Bamba, the Big Bopper Jr., and a whole slew of rock stars. A whole slew of them. The 2023 lineup included Bill Haley and the Comets, which was one of the bands that joined the Winter Dance Party after the crash to fill those spaces. Uh, Kenny Vance, whose name I recognize, but don't ask me why he's famous because I don't. I don't. I'm not a music buff. I'm sorry. I'm sure most of you are rolling your eyes right now. I just, I recognize the name, but I don't know who he is. Um, And then Austin Alsup the son of Tommy Alsup, and a top 10 finalist on The Voice in 2016. Please do not go on his social media and tell him that I was talking shit about his dad. I'm sure Tommy was a super nice guy, but that Heads Up Saloon thing was in super, super poor taste. And that, my friends, is the story of the day the music died and how Michigan played a role in the deaths of three of rock and roll's biggest stars of the 1950s by being way too fucking cold and getting them all sick and making them want to get on that stupid plane. Thank you, and you're welcome. And yes, this is the longest episode I've ever recorded, so... There's that. There were so many sources for today's episode. So many. For a full list, visit the page for this episode on the Violent Ends website. But my main source probably um, was the book, The Day the Music Died by Larry Lamer, Lamer, L8, spelled like Dammer with an L. Sorry, Larry. Um, It's a good book. Good book. Lots of really good information and helped me kind of parse through all of that misinformation that is out there in the world. Now, If you think, after all of that, that I have anything left to say today, any liquid cheese or, you know, anything else that I want to talk about, you are not correct, my friends. (laughs) I'm done. I'm so done. I'll see you in a couple weeks. Until then, keep shining, you magnificent what-the-fucks. 